0: We're going to be in the book of 1 John this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you brought your Bible with you, that'll be 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. (coughs) We will be closing up our study on 1 John this morning. So again, if you brought your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So a couple of years ago, Cheryl and I went to the Grand Canyon, and we went to the west side of the Grand Canyon. Uh, I may have told you we were uh, visiting Las Vegas a couple of years ago, and we decided that we would drive, rent a car, and drive to the west side uh, of the Grand Canyon because uh, there is on an Indian reservation there, and some of you may have been to this place, there is what they call the Skywalk that extends out over the side of the Grand Canyon, and it is a a bridge, a walkway with a glass floor uh, so that you can look down. Uh, It's a magnificent thing. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Cheryl is not a fan of heights. She did not enjoy it. Uh, But just to give you some idea of the scope uh, of this object, uh, it sits at about 4,000 feet higher than the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Now, it's not a straight 4,000 feet fall if the bridge water suddenly collapsed. That's just how far it is from uh, the bridge down to the Colorado River in the bottom of that part of the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's really only about, only about a five or 800 feet fall uh, if you were to fall straight down uh, from the side of this bridge. But like I said, I wasn't really worried about that, a because it's been around since like 2007. uh, That seems like a pretty good track record. Uh, This was uh, late 16, I guess. No, 15. This was late 15, Uh, and so I I thought we were okay, having been around eight years, uh, that there had been no reports of any disaster. Uh, It was a fairly. um, It wasn't a busy day. Uh, It can hold. uh, I read somewhere the other day. It can hold like. 200 plus people that are over 200 pounds, uh, but it really only like 120 can actually fit on it, Uh, so it's designed to hold more people than it will ever hold, and so I felt pretty good about that. It's on four inches of glass. There were a lot of other people out there wandering around. There are people who work for Grand Canyon West that stand out there all day with uh, pictures with cameras to take your picture as you're going by. So I felt pretty confident in that, in the protection that the glass offered, that the structure offered, that the railings that were about here on me. I mean, you kind of had to peek over to be able to see outside and look around. So I had comfort. I had confidence in that protection that all of that offered. And since I wasn't afraid, I was able to truly enjoy the moment. I was able to, and you put uh, little little booties on your feet so you don't scratch the glass, and so I was able to kind of walk around and look down at, at God's beauty, look down at this awesome creation. It made for some boldness as well, and then I was able to stand right in the middle of the pieces of glass and, 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 and not worry about it giving way when Cheryl was kind of clutching the side, saying to you, saying to herself and saying to me, why did you make me do this? Because when you trust the protection that's available to you, you're able to live more boldly. And so as we close out the book of First John, I want you to take that truth with you. John has spoken a lot about Christian behavior, but he leaves his people. He leaves this community that he helped put together, that he helped find. He leaves them with a simple point of encouragement. To trust the protector and to live boldly. So, in spite of all of the chaos going on around them, despite the fact that there were people trying to fracture their body, to trust God as the protector. Again, just one final recap on this book. John wrote it mainly as a response to a group of people that, uh, as Joel pointed out a couple of weeks ago, called the Gnostics, that were trying to introduce division within this body. They taught that Jesus came as a spirit, not actually in the flesh, because they believed that all things that were physical or material or fleshly were evil, and the spirit is the only thing that is good. <clears throat> and they taught that they had a secret access, a secret and special knowledge, <clears throat> a special knowledge of the truth, a special knowledge of the, of the spirit, that nobody else had. <clears throat> And because they had this, they were willing to split themselves off from everyone else, viewing themselves as more important and more enlightened. And so John, in an attempt to repair the fracture, teaches the basics of the faith. teaches about light and love, focusing on the practical application of how we treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls the false teachers toward repentance, and the faithful that are still following the way that he told them to follow in the beginning. He calls them to continue to care for their brothers, despite the vulnerability that that will bring. <clears throat> and he ends again with these words in the fifth chapter. This is John chapter five, First John chapter five, verses eighteen through twenty-one. <clears throat> we know. keep yourselves from idols. John says we know several times in this passage, pointing out once again that truth, as he calls Jesus the truth, again several times in this passage, that truth and knowledge are found solely in the person of Jesus Christ, whom he calls the true God. He does this so that his beloved children, the people that he references at the end, the people who are staying the, the, the path, staying in, in the correct way, so that they might have confidence in the testimony of Jesus over against the testimony of this secret knowledge that this other group is putting forth. So that they might be confident not only in what they believe, but in whom they believe. That he is the one true God. You know, one of the most vulnerable things about ever committing to belief in Jesus, <coughs> ever committing to a belief that Jesus is the one true God, is that idea that you might be wrong, that there might be some other way, that there might be some other truth that beats your truth, and we we open ourselves up into vulnerability when we say that we follow this God as the one true God. He is the only one in whom there is truth. He is the only one in whom there is salvation. Now, that's sometimes vulnerable for us, even though we live in, you know, a still fairly Christianized society, at least in our part of this country. But imagine what it must have been like for those to whom John was talking. Uh, This was not an easy situation for them. And so for them to come out and say amidst like all of the, the myriad of Roman gods, Greek gods that I'm sure that they had heard of, uh, the Jewish folks saying that not only were they believing in the wrong God, but they were also just complete heretics and blaspheming the one true God, and all of these people saying these things, that then the very people that they were worshiping and following Jesus alongside of all of a sudden changed their tune. Imagine the vulnerability, imagine the lack of confidence that that must have brought the people to whom John was talking. And so he reminds them, we know these things. Again, John was an eyewitness to these things. He started off that way in the first of this book, that he saw and heard the truth of Jesus, that he physically touched the physical Jesus in the flesh. He knows these things about the one true God that is Jesus Christ. And he shows us that this God can be known. The sovereign God and creator of the universe can be personally known. When you really think about that, that is an amazing truth. The one who spoke the stars into existence, the one who knows how the tiniest molecules, the tiniest atoms and particles of atoms work, and how they are manipulated by all of the physical world, this same God can be personally known by you and me. We can enter into a relationship with the creator and sovereign God of the universe. Through the person of Jesus Christ, again, whom John himself saw and heard and touched, Through the person of the Holy Spirit, to whom all of us have access today. And through the loving action of the church, which has the responsibility to make God known to the uttermost parts of the earth. A God who can be personally known, known is unique to Christianity in all of the marketplace of religions. Even when you look at the Jewish religion, there is a God that you can know, but the way that he is manifested in Jesus Christ, there is no other story like this story. A God who knows us from the inside out, who knows our inward parts, and was willing to descend from heaven to take on our flesh, therefore knowing us better than any other God could ever claim to, living in the same sin, not same sin, but same temptation to sin that all of us do, yet without sin, living in that he knows us better, and he he descended from heaven to be with us so that he might fix that relationship with us and live in a perfect relationship for us eternity, to reconcile us to his Father in heaven. This is what God intended in the very beginning as well. God wants to have a personal relationship with us, to begin to wrap our minds around how unworthy of that we are, yet how awesome it is that God extends himself in that way should give you uh, Should encourage you to praise this God, should encourage you to honor this God, should encourage you to be obedient to this God, and should encourage you to, even in the midst of chaos and danger, to be confident in the one who protects you, the one who wants to know you. And we need this deeply personal connection with God because, as John says, The world, the whole world, as he puts it, lies in the power of the evil one. In knowing and following Jesus as Savior and as Lord, we make ourselves a minority in the world. Because true and radical obedience to the way of Jesus Christ has always been and will always be countercultural. True and radical obedience to Jesus Christ has always been and will always be countercultural, Even when you stop to consider that that is true sometimes among those who claim to know God, just like John's false teachers, the ones who were attempting to drive a wedge in the church that John helped put together. Even in our world today, with those who claim to know and follow Jesus, true and radical obedience to the way of Jesus Christ will put you in a minority in our world and even in our country. This is just the way things have always been. That anytime Christianity begins to be the majority, begins to take over the majority religion, there are... There are groups within that that begin to dilute the message, that begin to turn it into something else. It happened in the Roman world. It happened when Catholicism basically took over. It was the only kind of Christianity there was at the time. So when Christianity basically took over the Roman Empire, and you see that the Roman Empire began to. Uh, begin to affect and begin to cause problems within Christianity, within the Roman Catholic Church. Things went downhill all the way until the Reformation when there was this big split. And anytime Christianity kind of rises to this level of power, it doesn't stay there very long because there is something at the heart of the message of Jesus Christ that is counter to the way all of us in our flesh want to live, that is counter to the ways of the world. As John said, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But not to harp on that too much. The reminder, the focus of this final passage is that despite that fact, God protects those who follow him. John says this again at the end of his letter for a reason. Living the Christian life was scary for this community amongst the Jews and the Romans and the false teachers people opposing them from every direction. You see, following Jesus is simultaneously the most dangerous and the safest thing you could ever possibly do. It's the safest thing because you are founded in the one true God who has guaranteed your life for eternity. He is the one who spoke the world into existence, and he is the one that will be there the day the new heaven and new earth are created, and then millions of years beyond that. He is without beginning and without end. And so it is the safest place to be, to be within the person of Jesus Christ. Yet in this world that is under control of the evil one, it can also be the most dangerous place to be. Again, that doesn't necessarily bear true in our reality, but if you look back in the history of the church You read Fox's Book of Martyrs or some other such literature, and you read about the stories of those who opposed the world in the name of Jesus Christ and the way that they were treated, the way that the world responded to them. Perhaps our world growing more and more in that direction with each passing day. It is dangerous yet safe to follow Jesus. There will be hardship in the way of Jesus Christ, but God guards the soul as Jesus said in Matthew chapter ten, twenty-eight, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus pointing to the fact that he is the one who has ultimate control over everything. So do not fear those who do. They do have control to kill the body. John says in this very passage, he is, Jesus is the eternal life. Trust in him, even when things are dangerous, even when things are chaotic. As John says, the evil one will not touch you. Now, the Greek word here for touch carries with it the idea of actually clinging to or attaching to. Think of it like a leech or a tick would stick to your skin. It's that kind of idea. The only other time that John uses this in any of his three letters as well as his gospel is in John chapter 20 verse 17 when, he, when Jesus tells Mary to let go of him so that he can go to the Father after the resurrection. It is as that idea of clinging to and bringing down and holding and this is what sin desires to do to us, to hold us, to bring us down. John started at the very beginning of the passage that we read that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. Those of us who are saved and washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, sin is not our identity any longer. We are still sinners. We still make mistakes. We're certainly not saying that. He speaks against that very truth early on in this book, but the idea is that our nature has changed. We no longer continue habitually sinning in the same way. There is a desire to improve. God is making us more like his son every day. There is fruit that is to be born for those following Jesus. Sin will not cling to you. The evil one will not cling to you any longer. There is nothing holding you down, nothing holding you back. Evil will not control you, is what Jesus is saying. Again, For John's community, evil is all around them. And he is reminding them that this thing, these forces, will not lay a hold of you. There is a protector. Trust the protector and live boldly. Know that he has you, that he has you in his grip, and he will never let you go. It's easy for us to look at their situation and think, yeah, they were desperately in need of that protection, and we can sometimes get so lackadaisical in our world that perhaps we don't think we're in need of that protection, at least not to that level. I've already kind of done that a several times throughout this sermon that, yeah, we're not being persecuted to the level that John's group was. Yeah, we don't have quite the same temptation or fear of falling away that John's group does. Evil is alive and well in our world today, though. It just puts on different clothes in our American culture. In our American culture, evil is more likely to come to us through the gods of materialism, through the gods of apathy, through the ways of making us feel comfortable in the way that we live where we forget about the truth of God, the ways of God, the calling of God, the calling to love one another and to treat our brothers and sisters in the way that God commands us to. Because we have fallen in love with the world, it's a very different situation than the situation into which John is writing, but it is still the same basic framework. There is an evil one who is tempting to lure us away. There are other teachings in this world, whether they claim the name Christian or not, that are teaching to lure us away. Some teachings so subversive that they don't even like, have a name, they don't even have a teaching. It's just the way that we live and we think is the way that we could call normal and the way that we follow after all of these other gods and all of these other passions. Those things are alive and well and we can be tempted to pull back and be afraid and be worried all of the time that we're constantly going to slip up, that there's no way that the church could ever really come back within this culture because we are so far gone. But John reminds us that there is a protector. His name is God. He will protect you. Yes, the evil one has control of the world, but he does not have control of you and he does not have control of the world to come. So trust the protector and live boldly. John throws in this last little verse that almost seems like a complete switch in verse 21. The final verse to this entire book when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This seems like such a stark switch for John that some scholars have tried to offer up the explanation that he was about to start writing something else, and either he quit writing the letter and sent it on, or that we only have a portion of it, that there's part of it that we're missing. But other scholars, I think, know better, and that really, this might have been where John was pointing everything all along, that final command to not have idols. The line seems abrupt, but what if it was his ultimate goal? You see, he assures throughout the entire letter, his community, that's in the midst of division and crisis. He assures them with the basics of the faith and tries to instill with them in them confidence to trust in the one who protects them. Why? So that they can stand strong against the temptations of the world and be his little children who do not have idols, who do not follow those other ways. And we're not thinking objects here. We're thinking anything that we put in the place of Jesus Christ. God will protect you. God will protect you to the point where he is the one true God and everything else being an imposter or an idol, that he will give you no reason if you protect, if he is, if he is protecting us, we have no reason to go another direction, to retreat or to be disobedient, but rather to believe in and follow him no matter what happens. We should have that confidence in a world full of idols to follow Jesus as the one true God because of the protection that is eternal that he offers us. One thing my football coach used to say to running backs, which I was not one, uh, go figure. But one thing our football coach used to say to running backs is that he would tell them to run behind their pads. Now, any of those of you ever played or coached or anything football, you've probably heard that line before. To run behind your pads, it means to have confidence in these things, these protections that you're wearing in your helmet and in your shoulder pads and to use them as weapons against the defense, to run over them, to run with confidence, knowing that those things will take the brunt of the impact if you are the one leading the charge. If you are the one initiating the contact, you're not going to be the one that gets hurt most of the time. Football, it's a metaphor, it falls apart. Most of the time, you're not going to be the one that gets hurt, but you are going to be one who is making the play happen who is being the aggressor. In the same way, we as Christians ought to play behind our pads in the way that we live in this world. We have all of the protection that we would ever need in the person of Jesus Christ. So to use a football metaphor, which I know I do all the time, but to use a football metaphor is: we go out into the world, we should lower our shoulder, keep our head locked tight within the helmet, and charge in the enemy knowing that our protection will never give way. These pads are never going to crack. This helmet will never be penetrated because our God is the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, who has sealed us for eternity, who wants to know us and be in us and, and, and have communion with us This God is the one who did everything. He will protect you no matter what enemy comes against you. And yes, the enemy is big, the enemy is strong, and the enemy is fast, but he is nowhere nearly as strong as our God. As John says in chapter 4, greater is the one who is in us than the one who is in the world. Since we know this, little children, John says to his community and to ours today, no matter what evils befall you or come against you, you will not be afraid don't have the idols stand strong stand true in the way of Jesus Christ and he will protect you right now and for all eternity trust the protector and live boldly the world is dangerous Christ will protect you in this dangerous world lead the charge play behind your pads and live boldly for the God who is always in control. During our time of invitation this morning, I encourage you to, just to meditate on this truth, that perhaps if your confidence has wavered or something is going on in your life that seems to be shaking foundations, let this be an encouragement for you this morning, to trust the protector and live boldly perhaps you're not feeling especially vulnerable, but maybe you need an encouragement to play behind your pads, to live boldly, to go and encounter a dangerous world in the name of Jesus Christ and not be afraid in the process, to not fear the one who might take body, but fear the one instead who has power over both the body and the soul, Jesus himself. Trust the protector and live boldly you need to pray for God to give you confidence or boldness I ask you to do that during this time you can come down here and do that with me down here at the altar during our time of invitation the altar is open if you want to come and pray there by yourselves as always you're welcome to pray where you are you can find me after the service if you would like to pray in that way let's stand together I'm going to pray you guys move in whatever way God is calling while Bill and Lynn lead us in our song of invitation Father, once again, we thank you for the testimony of your servant, John. God, we thank you for this, this church that he's writing to, for the testimony that they have of sticking it out in a very difficult circumstance. And God, we thank you that his advice is not just for them, but for us today as well. God, I pray a prayer of, of repentance for not living boldly for not having confidence in you in the way that we approach a world that is dangerous, but not nearly as powerful as you. So God, I pray that you would give myself, God, that you would give this church the confidence in your protection and the willingness to live boldly behind that protection. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.